From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. This week, when Ronnie met Mikhail, what a summit between the Soviet Union and the United States three decades ago can teach us about the current relationship between Moscow and Washington. So I have NATO. I have the UK, which is in somewhat turmoil. And I have Putin. Frankly, Putin may be the easiest of them all. Who would think? Who would think? That's President Trump boarding Air Force One for a series of meetings with allies in Brussels and the United Kingdom, and then on to his first formal summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki on July 16th. U.S. presidents never used to call meetings with Russian leaders easy. It wasn't that long ago that the Soviet Union was our Cold War enemy, as President Ronald Reagan reminded us back in 1983. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. But that was early Reagan. By the middle of the 1980s, the advent of perestroika and a new era of Soviet leadership changed Reagan's relationship to his communist adversary. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovii no provii. Trust but verify. You repeat that at every meeting. The Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev was opening up to economic and other reforms. In 1986, at a summit in Reykjavik, Iceland, he made a dramatic offer to Reagan to cut the nuclear arsenals of both countries. You know, we have lots of issues to discuss with the president. Behind the scenes on the American side was Ken Edelman. At the time, he was director of the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. More on that in a moment. But first, a word from the ER's sponsor. Are you thinking about retirement? You're likely to live a lot longer than you think, thanks to innovations in medical technology. And that means your money has to last as long as you do. Are you and your money prepared? Get your free retirement review from Edelman Financial and find out if your savings and investments can produce the income you need for your entire retirement. Get your free retirement review so you can feel retirement ready. Go to www.edelmanfinancial.com forward slash FP or call 1-866-PLAN-EFS. That's 866-P-L-A-N-E-F-S. Once again, it's edelmanfinancial.com forward slash FP or 866-PLAN-EFS. Advisory services offered through Edelman Financial Services, LLC. Securities offered through EF Legacy Securities, LLC, an affiliated broker-dealer. Member FINRA SIPC. Ken, well, it's fascinating to hear from someone who has witnessed a history in that moment. Before we get to the summit itself, can you just describe the state of relations between the Soviet Union and the United States in 1986 and the dynamic between Gorbachev and Reagan at that point? Gorbachev was new on the scene starting in 1985. When Reagan came into office, it was clear that The general opinion was he was just a wild cowboy who was irresponsible handling nuclear weapons. I was at the U.N. as one of the U.S. ambassadors to the U.N., 
And there was a protest in Central Park of over a million people against Ronald Reagan. This, Sarah, was the bigger protest than during any of the protests of the Vietnam era. And so it was the idea that the world is going to blow up, partly because of the Marxist and communist regime in Moscow, but mainly because of the irresponsible presidency of Ronald Reagan. I think it was June of 1982. So Reagan comes in and he's has a reputation as a cold warrior. He's seen as strong on communism, and the Russians see him that way, right? It's not just the Russians who see him that way. It's the Americans who see him that way. And some on the conservative right like that approach, but a lot of people were very, very nervous about it because they thought he was not going to be responsibly handling nuclear weapons. What did you think? I thought he was a hardliner like I was a hardliner. I thought he was responsible. The fact is that he had not come out of the blue. He had been a governor of California, which is the eighth largest GNP in the world at that time, and I think it still is. So he had a record of responsibility, not as an actor, uh, because he wasn't a very good actor. <laughs> People say he's a grade B actor. I don't think he was that high. But he was a very good governor for eight years in California, which is a substantial enterprise. But it did not involve foreign policy in any real sense and certainly did not involve the control of nuclear weapons. The surprise to me was that Ronald Reagan was actually at the core very anti-nuclear. He hated nuclear weapons. He wanted to rid the world of nuclear weapons. This was a surprise. I never suspected it in my wildest dreams. So you're saying that before Reykjavik, you did not have a sense of him being as bullish on nuclear weapons. But it seems to me there was a turning point, maybe at the beginning of his second administration, where he comes to think that there could be a major deal. And I'm wondering if we can actually start with Geneva in 1985. Isn't that the beginning of their relationship, Gorbachev and Reagan? It's the beginning of their relationship, but not very advanced, Sarah, because uh, the 1985 summit was really orchestrated. It took six months to organize it. I was in Geneva with the president. It was a lot of reading your talking points to each other. There were a lot of meetings that were really formal. So it was a choreographed episode. There were a lot of social events between the two couples, uh, Raisa Gorbachev and Mikhail Gorbachev on the one hand and Nancy and Ronnie Reagan on the other hand. But it was pretty stiff, and it was pretty formal. Now, Reykjavik was the opposite. It was started, announced, all in 10 days' time. It was no social events at all during the weekend. It was 10 and a half hours of, by and large, one-on-one -on -one talks between Reagan and Gorbachev that were without a script. There were no memos for Reykjavik. There was no talking points for Reykjavik. It was come as you are, and it was, I think, the purest appearance of Ronald Reagan in his eight years in office and the purest appearance of Mikhail Gorbachev in his time in office. By that, I mean Ronald Reagan, who saw himself as a great negotiator because he was, as an actor, president of the Screen Actors Guild uh, and a great negotiator, was dying to negotiate with a Soviet leader. 
But he came in office. Brezhnev was there. Then he came after Brezhnev died in March of 82. Then they had Andropov and then Chernyenko. Reagan kept wanting to negotiate, and he kept saying, you know, these Soviet leaders, they keep dying on me. And how can I negotiate with them when they're dying on me? But then finally he gets Mikhail Gorbachev, who's in his 50s. He's not a military man. He's a bit of a different kind of Soviet character. Totally different. He is somebody who, first of all, can stand up in the room by himself, uh, unlike uh, the past three Soviet uh, general secretaries. Uh, He is very sharp. He knows the issues very well. And as you say, he is a generation younger than Reagan. He is uh, about 54 years old at the time of Reykjavik. Reagan is about 75, 76 years old. So there's a generation difference. And those of us who work with Ronald Reagan were a little worried, thinking that Reagan was a master at handling domestic politicians. But when you're in the real big leagues of dealing with the Soviet leader, that's a different kind of phenomenon. And we didn't know, especially when Gorbachev was around, how you know, the elder Ronald Reagan would deal with this very sharp, very young, very vigorous leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. So Gorbachev, after Geneva, then reaches out to Reagan. And I actually, now that the uh, archives have been declassified, I was able to pull up the letter that he sent to Reagan. And at the very end of the letter, he says, that's why an idea has come to my mind to suggest to you, Mr. President, A quick one-on-one meeting, let's say in Iceland or London, maybe just for one day, to engage in a strictly confidential, private and frank discussion. Was it shocking to get this letter? I was called into the office of the National Security Advisor at the time and said, Ken, I want you to read this letter that just came in last night from Mikhail Gorbachev. The first two pages of the letter were typical Soviet stuff, complaining about this, saying the United States was a warmonger, that, et cetera, et cetera. It was just straight out of Pravda or Zvestia, the Soviet newspapers, uh, that were totally critical of the United States. All of a sudden, as if attached, the last two paragraphs are, regardless of all this, in other words, forget about the first two pages of my letter here, uh, let's meet at a place. London or Reykjavik. Why were those two chosen? Because they're halfway between Moscow and Washington. Uh, When I saw the letter, my jaw dropped open. I was aghast by the whole thing. And I asked the National Security Advisor, I said, how is the president going to react to it? He says, well, the president's already reacted to it. He's written back already. This is like the first hour after getting the letter that he would love to do that. He preferred Reykjavik to London. For the simple reason is that when he went to London, he had to meet with the Queen. He had to meet with Prime Minister Thatcher. He had to meet with the Parliament. He had to meet with the NATO Council. He had to do all that stuff when you go to London, whereas when you go to Reykjavik, there's no one there. So you can go there and have a 15-minute meeting with the president of Iceland, and that's about it. So how much time passed between the letter and actually boarding the plane? I think nine days maybe 10 days. And what was the anticipation of that like? What was it like to be a part of that delegation? We had very minimal expectations. Uh, We were told by the CIA. We were told by the Soviet ambassador to to, uh, Washington. We were told by the American ambassador 
to Moscow all the same, that this was going to be a non-substantive meeting. It was going to be a photo op. It was grin and grip, shake hands and have some photos because Gorbachev needed this for his standing in the Kremlin. So we went there really not expecting much to happen at all besides great photos. And after the first meeting between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev in the morning of Saturday, October 11th, 1986, we said, holy cow, this guy is coming to do serious business. What was the first thing that gave you that tip off? Did he start off right away saying, you know, I want to put all the nuclear weapons on the table? I mean, how did it start? It started in a very funny way, Sarah. We were called into the bubble, which is a room within a room in the American embassy. It's They have a bubble in every embassy around the world. It has walls about a foot thick and absolutely secure, so no one can penetrate to find out what happens in the bubble. It's a secure conversation. The bubble in Reykjavik was the smallest bubble ever made. We had eight of us squeezed in, shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee in this, while there's a big crank uh, like in a bank vault to close the door. Schultz started out by saying that, Secretary of State George Schultz, that uh, Reagan had listened very attentively when Gorbachev proposed this move on nuclear weapons, that moves on nuclear weapons, etc. After Schultz was really getting going, all of a sudden this vault-like uh, handle at the uh, start of the bubble opens up and one of these gigantic Secret Service guys calls in there, the President of the United States. We all did what anybody does when they hear that. We all stood up. Now we are shoulder to shoulder and belly to belly in this very confined spot. Reagan is coming in and Reagan's a big guy. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, this is an eight-seater, four on each side, and now we have a ninth person in this eight-seater. And I thought to myself, okay, here comes the president of the United States. He's going to stay in here. Here's the secretary of state. He's there for sure. Here's the national security advisor. He's not going anywhere. And while I was not exactly chopped liver, I was not exactly at the top of the food chain either. So I said, right here, Mr. President, I offered him my chair. And I hit the ground, and I sat at the ground. And Sarah, for the next 40 minutes, I leaned gently against the presidential knees while we talked (laughs) about what uh, Gorbachev had proposed to Reagan. And so at that point, what is Reagan presenting to you? Is he saying, here's what he's presented, and what should we come back with? Has he already discussing SDI? Where are we? We are where Reagan says... Here's what Gorbachev proposed. There are 123 missiles or nuclear or – and Reagan, bless his soul, uh, you know, arms control is a complicated subject, all right? He had numbers in his head and he has categories in his head, but he couldn't put the two together, okay? Mm -hmm. So he Mm -hmm. says there are 123, we said, of warheads or these missiles or these launchers or this throwaway, and Reagan was totally baffled. And he says, yeah, but there are 4,000. Well, what is that? So we're fumbling around while Reagan's trying to reconstruct what Gorbachev had proposed to him. And all of a sudden, Reagan says, oh, hey, fellas, he also gave me this piece of paper. So he takes out of his uh, sport jacket inside pocket this piece of paper. 
Gorbachev knew his man. He knew that Reagan was a big thinker and was not very good at the categories or the numbers. So when Reagan presents this piece of paper, he, the president, keeps going on talking. All of us lunge for the paper, realizing that's where the substance lies. All of us in the nuclear business uh, looked at the piece of paper, and our reaction, Sarah, was all the same. Holy cow. This guy is really set to do business. So what was written on the paper exactly? The paper in the bubble was Mm -hmm. uh, Gorbachev's idea on how to bridge the difference on nuclear weapons. And what was revolutionary about it, Sarah, was for the first time in Soviet history, the Soviets were willing to really reduce nuclear weapons. And that afternoon, after they discussed things, Reagan proposed, and it was a very good idea, that we have an experts meeting in the Hofti House, supposedly the haunted house uh, outside of uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. So we met there at 8 o'clock at night, and I was back in the bubble about 8 o'clock in the morning and said to the president, Mr. President, we have accomplished more last night in one night than we have in seven and a half years of meeting with the Soviets in Geneva. We took all of our tremendous accomplishments, revolutionary accomplishments from the night before, and Gorbachev said, yes, we can agree to all that under one condition. You have to confine SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, unkindly called Star Wars, the uh, program to protect the United States from incoming ballistic missiles by shooting them down. We can agree to all these nuclear reductions if you give up SDI, or in his words, if you can find SDI to a laboratory. And why is that the sticking point? Is because of my understanding is that SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, was still relatively theoretical at that point. Uh, that's almost accurate, Sarah. I would say it's entirely theoretical at that okay. point. <laughs> you're, okay. You're understating uh, the uh, unreality of SDI at that point. But what made it such a contentious point was that Ronald Reagan absolutely loved it and Mikhail Gorbachev absolutely hated it. The whole strategic doctrine had been built up on what's called mutually assured destruction. We will destroy you if you destroy us, okay? And therefore, let's not, as Ronald Reagan loved to talk about it, didn't love it, but he described it very vividly. It's like two cowboys with guns at each other's heads. All right. So your incentive is not to pull the trigger ever because the other guy will pull the trigger and blast you. And so the mutual assured destruction had been the way the world was organized until Reagan proposed SDI. Reagan loved SDI because he hated nuclear weapons. And he thought that a defense against incoming nuclear weapons would be a guarantee against getting nuclear weapons by any country like North Korea, like Iraq, and especially the Soviet Union. And at this point, after this revolutionary night, as you described it, what's the rapport like between Reagan and Gorbachev? Gorbachev was very direct. And so during that weekend, there was not a lot of chumminess between the two of them. There was no social event at all. There was no drinks together. There was no meals together. And Reagan was very direct with him in a very nice way. So the tone was business 
for 10 and a half hours. Reagan would make his comment. Uh, Gorbachev would react to that. Uh, I don't think they were ever real friends. Uh, I know that afterwards, uh, Reagan was very disappointed that Gorbachev would not go along with the cuts in nuclear weapons that Reagan really wanted. And I remember the scene very well where uh, Reagan was furious at the end of the Hofti House meeting, walked out to go into the car. Gorbachev followed him in there. And right when Reagan was ready to go into the car, Gorbachev said to him to try to be nice, well, uh, Mr. President, I don't know what we could have done differently. And Reagan just turned to him, squinted his eyes, plunged his finger into Gorbachev's chest and said, well, you could have said yes, and then just got into his car, furious. So they left on bad terms, not on a personal, but a real disappointment by Reagan that Gorbachev had let him down. And the coverage at the time was that it was a failure. And it has been, even as of 2016, I saw an Atlantic piece um, saying that this was, that sacrificing this really far-reaching agreement on the altar of SDI was a major error. You disagree with that? It's not just my opinion to disagree with that. You look at the number of nuclear weapons at the time of Reykjavik, and it was something like 70,000 between the two sides of uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Today, Sarah, the United States has about 25% of the nuclear weapons we had at the time of Reykjavik. In other words, a 75% decline. Today, Russia has about 20% of the number they had at the time of Reykjavik, which is an 80% decline. Yes, Reykjavik was seen as a terrible, terrible failure right afterwards. But within six months, we were back negotiating on the terms that we had worked out at the experts meeting the night before. And by a year after Reykjavik, uh, the Gorbachevs were in Washington, D.C. to sign the arms control agreement, which eliminated for the first, and I'd have to say very sadly, the only time in history eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons. That is a great, great success. At the time, though, on offer was almost a total elimination. Do you think that ever would have happened? I doubt it. I think what you had to do was eliminate an entire class of nuclear weapons, which, as they say, they did, and then start the process of reduction. If you had asked me if I had done one of these wonderful interviews with you, Sarah, in 1986, and you would have said to me, Ken, in 30 years' time, there's going to be a reduction of 75% of nuclear weapons on the United States side and 80% on the Russian side, I would say you're crazy. That's way too optimistic for anything. But that's what happened. But leaving Reykjavik, Reagan was also morose. What was that like? What was the return? We went from the Hofti house back to the ambassador's house. And we walked in there and Reagan was walking back and forth with his Irish face all red, just muttering to himself. And I remember we left him alone because he was just so upset. His bodily handler gave a interview for the Miller Center in University of Virginia years later. And he said that he had never seen 
Ronald Reagan so upset except the time that Nancy Reagan went in for cancer surgery. But otherwise, that was the most upset he had seen him in his adult life. So the president was furious. And you see this as, I mean, in your book, you say that this is really the beginning of the end of the Cold War, that this is the pivotal moment, and that actually Mikhail Gorbachev himself even has said the same. Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. Gorbachev's probably been asked 15 times, what really happened here? When you came in office in 1985, it was the chilliest part of the Cold War. When you left in 1990, uh, relations had really totally changed. Well, what changed? What, what, what was the change? And his answer is always the same. Reykjavik. Reykjavik changed everything. And why do you think that was, even though they didn't make the agreement that they'd come to make, even though he'd offered so much and Reagan walked away? I mean, why was it seen as so crucial? When you talk to somebody for 10 and a half hours, you get to know the other person and they had no talking points. So that's one thing. They really got to understand each other and how they thought about the most critical issues facing uh, the world at that time. Secondly, they really did agree that nuclear weapons were a menace not only to their own societies and to each other, but to the whole world. And they agreed that nuclear weapons were really a terrible cross to bear in the modern era. And number three, both of them were very courageous and they could see the courage of the other side. And what was your role in terms of advising him on sticking with SDI I wish I could tell you, uh, Sarah, that I was in the middle of all this and telling Reagan, hold on, and being a great historical figure. I was very lucky to be involved in a great historical event. But at no time over that weekend, and uh, a little sad to tell you, did Reagan ever turn to us and say, what do you think we should do about SDI? Reagan knew what he wanted to do about SDI. He wanted to build it. He wanted to protect the country. He wanted to give an, a future American president a third alternative. What were the alternatives Reagan faced? If, God forbid, there's a nuclear attack, you can either say this was terrible and do nothing, which is, seems outrageous, or you launch a retaliation against mostly citizens of uh, the Soviet Union. You're talking millions, if not tens of millions of people uh, who were dying because of nothing they did. Those were the two alternatives. Reagan hated those alternatives. And he thought, why isn't there a third button? Why isn't there a third alternative? We can shoot down these missiles before they land in the United States. We don't have to take the uh, nuclear attack, and we certainly don't have to retaliate against these tens of millions of innocent people. But can you see why... In the immediate aftermath, people saw it as a failure, given that, as you mentioned, it wasn't even relatively theoretical. It was entirely theoretical. So to go for that dream that he had over the offer, is that why it was so perceived negatively? Yes, it was perceived negatively because unlike every other summit, there wasn't a communique at the end. There wasn't a toasting of champagne glasses. There wasn't a great handshake and, you know talk of uh, how they would meet again. It was seen as, uh, you know, just a real breakup. The chief of staff of the White House, right after the breakup of Reykjavik, 
uh, gave an interview on NBC TV saying Reagan and Gorbachev will never meet again. I was interviewed on ABC at the time with Peter Jennings, and I said, I thought it was a good success. Why? Because you had the general secretary of the Soviet Union and the chief of staff of the Soviet military agreeing to nuclear cuts for the first time ever in history, and then Gorbachev tying it to SDI. But those cuts were made by the top level of the Soviet government, and we can return on the basis of those cuts. And four months later, we did. Let me pivot for a moment. What do you make of relations between the U.S. and Russia today? I've never seen an American president praise a Russian leader the way uh, Trump does to Putin. The idea of having a total inability to say anything critical about a Russian leader and a total inability to say anything nice about a uh, chancellor of Germany, a prime minister of Britain, or president of uh, France, is to me uh, very peculiar. In the Reagan administration, we always had the watchword, be nice to your friends and be strong with your enemies. Thank you so much. Okay, very good. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. Our podcast this week was produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, visit foreignpolicy.com, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.